It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say. Your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions. Supply. What did it take to survive an ancient siege? Why was the cult of Dionysus behind so many slave revolts in ancient Rome? What's the tragic history and mythology behind Japan's most haunted ancient forest? We're Jen. And Jenny. From Ancient History Fangirl. Join us to explore ancient history and mythology from a fun, sometimes tipsy perspective. Find us at ancienthistoryfangirl.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Before we begin today, I'd like to recommend a podcast called The History of Vikings. The History of Vikings is a podcast that explores topics pertaining to the Viking Age, Norse mythology, Icelandic sagas, and the history of medieval Scandinavia and Iceland. Every episode features a discussion with a scholar whose research focuses on this period of history and literature. There are episodes exploring the Icelandic poems that inspired Tolkien's Lord of the Rings, heroic Viking death scenes appearing in the sagas, the process of discovering the Viking Age trading stations, and these are just some of the topics covered by the history of Vikings. If you've enjoyed our interview with Sir John Elliot and are looking forward to future interviews with experts in the field, then the history of Vikings is exactly for you. You can find it everywhere you find good podcasts. And now, on with the show. Welcome to Pax Britannica. Episode 13. The Prince That Was Promised. Welcome back to Pax Britannica. Last week, we followed the first few years of the plantation of Ulster, the latest in a long line of both attempts by London to civilise Ireland, as well as James's attempts to bring his English and Scottish subjects together. In one of these aims, the plantation was a success. The settlement of British, that is, English and Scots and Welsh, planters, would forever alter the demographic of the north of Ireland. In the other aim as another goal in James's endless and endlessly fruitless efforts in forming a distinct British identity, it failed. The English resented the Scots for profiting from English military success in the Nine Years' War, while the Scots resented English dominance in land and commerce, and created their own enclaves within the province of Ulster in response. We also saw how Ulster was never truly threatened by the burgeoning plantation in Virginia, being much closer, safer, and familiar to the English and Scots than faraway America. This week, before we return to London for the end of James's first Parliament, we must first fill a gap in our narrative so far. We have covered the King at length, from his early life and into his early English reign, 
but we've barely touched on the people around him, his family. Government under James was not quite the personal politics of the medieval king, when a monarch had to travel to ensure he was seen and heard by his subjects, both large and small. Government had become much more centralised, more bureaucratic, after the Wars of the Roses and over the reigns of the Tudors. Still, though, we have to be careful not to overemphasise this Tudor revolution. Politics and government were still personal, and the most important person was the king. As we saw in our first narrative episode, just who got to spend time with the king was much more important than who was granted which government position. James had left the Privy Council largely unchanged upon his accession, and yet councillors still resented the greater distance that had grown between them and their monarch as the bedchamber came to the fore, and was promptly filled with Scots, perhaps best exemplified with James's councillors traipsing across the countryside, following the king on his many processions or hunts, desperate to get one moment with the monarch for him to sign some papers. Proximity and access to the king was the engine of government and who could be closer to the king than his own family? Queen Anna, or as she is more commonly referred to in British history, Anne, had entered James's life in a chain of events that would not seem out of place in a fantasy novel. She had been betrothed to the king, undergone a proxy marriage, and then set sail to meet her distant husband. En route, she had supposedly been targeted by Danish witches, who summoned a storm to sink her fleet. As her ships took shelter in Norway, James had heard of her plight, and, risking unrest and rebellion in his own kingdom, sailed across the North Sea to meet her. On their return, the royal couple were afflicted with further storms, as the Danish witches were now, apparently, joined by Scots. Once they arrived in Edinburgh, the witches on both sides of the sea were hunted down and punished, and the king and queen lived happily ever after. Well, it's 14 years after the happily ever after that we're interested in. As James was declared king of England and Ireland, Anne was pregnant with what was hoped to be their sixth child. Sadly, only three of the royal children lived long enough to play a role in our narrative. First was Henry Frederick, the future Prince of Wales and heir apparent. Then came Elizabeth, named, of course, after the Queen, because if you can't name a river or town after a monarch, name your children. Third was Margaret, who lived for only 16 months before dying of an illness. Then came Charles, a sickly boy who no one expected to live for very long. Finally, to this point, was Robert, who lived for only four months. Following so far? Well, the only ones you need to remember are Henry Frederick, or just Henry, Elizabeth, and Charles. After her arrival in England, Anne gave birth in rapid succession to two more daughters, Mary in 1605 and Sophia in 1606. Sadly, both would die at a young age, Sophia within a day of her birth. So, on the death of Queen Elizabeth, Anne was pregnant once again. Because of that, and Charles's sickly nature, it was agreed that James would begin his procession to London alone, with the royal family arriving after him. 
So off James popped to go pick up a couple of crowns, and Anne put her Scottish affairs in order and awaited the return of the Earl of Mar, John Erskine, Prince Henry's guardian from England. Once Mar returned, they would go together to Stirling Castle to collect Henry, and from there they would travel with Elizabeth to meet James in London. However, Mar did not arrive when Anne later claimed she had been promised he would. Anne, hearing that the Earl might be delayed until May, a whole month later than she had expected, she set off on her own. Against James's instructions, she went to Stirling Castle to, she said later, simply see her son. The Countess of Mar was shrewd enough to realise that once the Queen was in the Prince's company, she would not settle to leave him, and refused to allow her to see Henry. The King had explicitly arranged for Henry to be at Stirling Castle to keep him away from his mother. As it was in fact Anne's goal to take Henry, the Countess and the Queen came to loggerheads, and over dinner, Anne fainted. She blamed the Countess, the Earl, and her husband for her illness. She also blamed them for her subsequent miscarriage, although some sources state that Anne deliberately facilitated the miscarriage in one way or another. James was furious with his wife, but gave in and allowed her to return Henry to Edinburgh on the 27th of May. On the 1st of June, Anne, complete with Henry and Princess Elizabeth, left Edinburgh for England. They would never come back to Scotland. As you may have gathered from this episode, the warm and loving relationship between James and Anne appears to have soured over the previous decade. Partly, this was due to James's personal relationships with his court favourites, which we will touch on in a future episode. But a further source of tension came from Anne's religious beliefs. Anne was, as Peter McCulloch puts it, one of Jacobean England's consummate church papists. She played the part as was expected of her, as the Queen of three officially Protestant realms, and attended Protestant services and employed Protestant preachers and chaplains in her service, although they must have felt like a chocolate fireguard. Anne refused to take part in Anglican services early in her time in England, and it was an open secret that she still practised the Catholic faith. In 1603, one courtier was thrown into the tower by James after he was found to be couriering a rosary from the Pope himself. Anne claimed that she had neither invited nor accepted the gift, but still arranged for the courtier's release. She appears to have been Protestant on her death many years later, but Anne maintained a delicate balance between social expectation and her own religious beliefs. In Scotland, Anne had been quite the political animal, often in pursuit of the rather understandable desire to maintain contact and control over her children's upbringing. Her final skirmish with the Earl of Mar had been the latest in a long line of factional conflicts. In England, however, she played less of a role in high politics unless they expressly affected her friends or her family. As we shall see, however, Anne was very interested in their marriage opportunities, and in the dynastic world, such arrangements were absolutely a matter of politics. Aside from her children, Anne was increasingly a patron of the arts. She held masks and balls to rival any queen in Europe, and had a keen interest in the theatre, 
whereas James is said to have slept through many of the plays that are now heralded as the greatest in the English-speaking world. Anne sometimes arranged for plays made of all-female actors, and in multiple cases took to the stage herself, along with her ladies-in-waiting. Not in the globe, mind you, but this was still scandalous. She commissioned Ben Jonson regularly. Upon her request, he wrote many masks, including the Mask of Blackness, which involved the Queen and her court blacking up. Yes, the Queen and the leading women of the kingdom wore blackface, and talked about how much more attractive paler skin was, particularly the women of Britannia. The play was controversial for the cost, £3,000, the number of women in the performance, the social status of those women, and the blackface, because it was makeup and not a mask. I am not knowledgeable enough to comment on whether this reflected English attitudes towards race, or European attitudes more generally, but once the British become more engaged with the transatlantic slave trade, I will return to the topic. As it is, it's an anecdote that I couldn't simply pass over, but I am sure it will come up again in the future. Personality-wise, Anne was noted as being incredibly generous with her friends and allies, and outwardly a loyal queen and virtuous wife to James. As queen, she had a role to play in international affairs, and she played it admirably and to the benefit of her husband's foreign policy. She kept relations with her native Denmark pleasant, and even had her brothers, Ulrich, Duke of Holstein, as well as King Christian IV, visit for months at a time. She was astutely aware of her status as daughter, sister, and husband to kings, and the mother of a future king, and any imposition on her honour was vigorously defended. Her dislike of Henry Howard, Earl of Northampton, came about when he commented that she was just as much a subject of James as he, and when one of her brothers deigned to intrude on her private residence, as an intimate family member thought he might, she refused to speak to him for weeks over the breach in decorum. As I touched on, Anne remained largely out of political decisions once she arrived in England, with the exception of her children. She will play a key role in future episodes as we look into the Spanish match in more detail, but in this period, she was still an active participant. In 1604, she secretly approached the Constable of Castile, who was in London to arrange peace between England and Spain. She proposed the betrothal of Henry to the Spanish Infanta. This didn't go anywhere, but her closeted Catholicism meant she favoured marriage proposals from Catholic rulers, and this was well known on the continent. Again, it was an open secret. Various Catholic states approached the Queen as an avenue to the King's ear, but for both Henry and Elizabeth, Anne failed to secure a Catholic match. Her favoured choice for Elizabeth and Henry, Catholic Savoy, was overruled by James and Henry, both of which preferred a Protestant match. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. 
Prince Henry Frederick was born in February of 1594, and his double name was derived from his grandfathers, Frederick II of Denmark and Henry Stuart, Lord Darnley, recipient of a mysterious explosion and shortness of breath. This meant that when Elizabeth died in March 1603, Henry was only nine years old, and, as we've previously covered, in the custody of the Earl of Mar on James's orders. With his father's accession to the English and Irish thrones, Henry was made the Duke of Cornwall, in addition to his title as Duke of Rossi, which were both the traditional titles of the heir apparent to the English and Scottish thrones. After being recovered by his mother, he travelled south with her and his sister Elizabeth to meet his father. On the 2nd of July, Henry, still only nine, by the way, was invested as a Knight of the Garter, and greatly impressed his father's English counsellors with his behaviour. He also impressed foreign dignitaries, with the Venetian ambassador being struck by his wit, describing him as, quote, ceremonious beyond his years, end quote. Now in England, Henry was granted a household of his own by James, possibly to keep the boy away from his mother. If that was the intention, it only worked for so long. Anne had the household dissolved in 1604, and Henry travelled between the royal palaces and often in direct contact with his mother. The prince was a frequent hunter and sportsman, and a talented dancer, as was expected of any young prince. But Henry was notably interested in less active pursuits, like learning and theatre. In 1605, he visited Magdalen College at Oxford University, and he regularly attended the masks performed at his mother's request. Still, his was a polite interest, and while usually quite diligent in his studies, he often displayed more interest in sports and hunting than in his books. One tale describes an argument between Henry and James, with the king disappointed in Henry's lack of bookishness. James was, after all, highly learned himself, or at least considered himself such, and well known for his writings. When compared to his younger brother, Charles's eager interest in his studies, Henry supposedly declared that, quote, we'll make him Archbishop of Canterbury then. Not that he completely avoided his studies, with the French ambassador noting he spent at least two hours a day in his books, but the rest of his time was filled with sport and military pursuits. He begged his friends to send him reports on French military preparations, both in terms of the army, as well as the details of their fortifications. And anyone seeking the prince's favour knew exactly what gifts to send. Horses, arms, and armour. Nottingham, as Lord Admiral, went one further, and gave the prince a ship, the Disdain. As he got older, the prince rode in the tilt during the visit of Christian IV, and commissioned a riding school at St. James's Palace. In 1608, the same designer of the Disdain began building a larger ship for the air, the Prince Royal, which was finished in 1610, and assuredly won the prince's favour just in time for the designer to be saved from charges of corruption. His naval interest went further, and he was a regular visitor and correspondent with Sir Walter Raleigh, imprisoned in the Tower still for his connection to the plots against his father. Traitor or not, Raleigh was one of the greatest seamen in Stuart England, and Henry was vociferous in his desire for knowledge. 
His interest in military matters was welcomed by the so-called War Party in James's court, who were frustrated by the king's desire to be the great peacemaker. During the Ulick Cleves succession crisis between 1609 and 1610, the prince's opinion was sought by Salisbury, and he was well aware of his own value as a marriageable bachelor. In this, Henry came into conflict with the wishes of his mother. He openly dismissed the possibility of a marriage into the family of the Duchy of Savoy, and took the lead in finding suitably Protestant matches for himself and his siblings. He told his father, quote, Two religions should never lie in my bed, end quote. Now, those among you who are aware of the traditions of the British royal family will be aware that, among other titles granted to the heir apparent, such as the dukedoms of the Rothsey and Cornwall, there is another, more famous title, that of the Prince of Wales. Up until 1610, though, Henry was not the Prince of Wales. In 1609, he had been knighted, and a special tax had been levied for the ceremony. But by the end of the year, Henry had had enough of not receiving his traditional honour, along with the financial and political benefits such a title gave. He had an argument drawn up, based on historical precedent for previous Princes of Wales, which argued that he should be granted the title as soon as possible. Salisbury had been swayed by the argument, and seeing the potential use of this request, presented it to the king and to the rest of the Privy Council. The Privy Council, for their part, urged James at first to wait for at least two years, out of financial concerns. But Salisbury and the popular prince managed to argue successfully in its favour. The original plan was for Henry to be invested in the title as early as February 1610, but again, due to financial concerns, it was delayed until June, after the City of London agreed to provide a loan of £100,000 for the event. That hundred grand went towards a truly elaborate ceremony, which was more like a coronation than anything else. In Westminster Palace, surrounded by both Houses of Parliament and various notables and foreign dignitaries, dressed in their finest silks and robes, with the hall hung with tapestries. The prince himself was dressed in ermine, which cost more than £1,300, and with the granting of a sword, a ring, a coronet, and a ceremonial rod called a verge, Henry Frederick was created Prince of Wales and Earl of Chester by his father. This was only the main ceremony, and there were plays, masks, and dances held over the preceding and following months. The day before, Henry had witnessed the knighting of 25 men, hand-picked by the prince, and during the previous week had watched a boating display on the Thames in his honour. It was a spectacle of incredible proportions, one fully fitting with the reputation for extravagance which the Stuart court enjoyed, and Parliament dreaded. Henry Frederick was the ideal prince. He was physically impressive, a fine hand at lance and bow, and a significantly better hunter than his father. He had a healthy attitude towards war, as was expected of a future monarch, and was genuinely interested in the minutiae of warfare. He was never bookish, but was learned enough for the scholars at Oxford to appreciate his efforts, 
while his interest in drama and the theatre put him right at home in the world of Marlowe, Johnson and Shakespeare. He was gregarious, witty, courteous and pious. He was also, sadly, never going to be King Henry IX. While his reputation has undoubtedly improved after his death, especially as writers compare what Henry could have been with the failings of his younger brother Charles, there does seem to have been great potential in the young prince. The two other members of the royal family we will briefly look at today are Henry's younger sister and brother, Elizabeth and Charles. Charles, the future Charles I, was a sickly child and never had the same interest in physical activities as his older brother. Like Henry, Charles was shipped off to a Scottish noble family until he was four, at which point he moved to England and the care of the Carey family. He is recorded as being slow to speak and to walk, His speech impediment would later manifest as a stutter, while his difficulty walking was due to weak ankles, which Mark Kishlansky and John Morrill suggest could have been caused by rickets. If this makes Charles sound feeble after listing the capabilities of Henry, don't be so sure. He received the same education as Prince Henry, and flourished in matters of theology and rhetoric, despite his speech impediments. He was vigorous and stylistic with his language, and the comment from Henry that he should be made Archbishop of Canterbury was not purely born from a frustrated argument with his father. It is entirely possible that had his brother acceded to the throne and born heirs, Charles would have become a bishop. Such was not to be his fate, however. In 1609 or 1610, as Henry was arranging for his investiture as Prince of Wales, Charles took on his personal motto. If you would conquer all things, submit yourself to reason. Elizabeth led more or less a quiet life during the first years of her father's English reign. She had travelled south with her brother and mother, and had been placed in the care of Lady Frances Howard, wife of Henry Brooke, the Lord Cobham, in June. If the name Cobham rings a bell, it's because the Lord was implicated in the main and by-plot of 1603. Due to this suspicion, Elizabeth was removed from the custody of Lady Howard by September and transferred to Lord Harrington of Exton. Harrington was a zealous Protestant and keen supporter of education and learning, which seemed to have played a role in the young princess's later attitudes. In the hours after the revelation of the gunpowder plot, Harrington took Elizabeth away from his estate and into the safety of the city of Coventry, out of a justified fear that the conspirators planned to seize the princess. This had, after all, been their intention, had the assassination of both James and Prince Henry gone as planned. After their rather short-lived rampage, the conspirators were captured or killed, and Elizabeth's life returned to normal. She remained with the Harringtons until 1608, when she rejoined the court and lived at Hampton Court Palace. She became very close with her brother Henry, sharing in his love of the mask and dancing. They exchanged a multitude of letters during this time, covering discussions both of recreational subjects, such as the theatre, as well as much more life-changing events. Her upbringing among the zealous Harringtons made her receptive to what Ronald Ashe calls Henry's idealistic militant Protestantism, especially on the topic of her potential marriage. 
This connection was undoubtedly aided by Henry's friendship with John Harrington, heir to Elizabeth's mentors, and the princess clearly idolised her older brother. As we shall see in future episodes, after his death, Elizabeth, not Charles, became seen as the champion of Henry Frederick's political and religious worldview. Next week, we have a special episode. I was very happy to be asked by Brandon of the Dead Ideas podcast to be interviewed on my experiences as a history podcaster. We talked about what made me start podcasting, why I chose the topic I did, and why I moved on to this show. We also talk about more general experiences which all podcasters have, the mistakes we made, and the things we'd change if we did it all again. And all in all, we had a lovely little chat. The following week, we return to the narrative, with an episode on James's closest courtiers, his favourites, and how the first Stuart Parliament came to an end. Thank you to my House of Lords, the Right Honourable Earl of Somerset, Brendan Bonner, the Countess of Shrewsbury, Elaine Dickens, the Countess of Surrey, Jean Buckley, the Right Honourable Earl of Oxford, Christopher Grogan, the Most Honourable Marchioness of Scullion, Lady Jennifer, Her Grace the Duchess of Devon, Michelle Gersich, and the Royal Headsman, executed today. Thank you to everyone else who's pledged themselves to my service on Patreon. If you want to join their ranks, please go to patreon.com slash Pax Britannica. I appreciate every single pledge and follower and everything. It's all amazing. It blows my mind every time. My favourite review this week is from Nigel St. Whitehall in the United States. He says, I thoroughly enjoy this podcast. The overall effort is well-researched. The delivery is clear and concise, and yet the coast keeps the tone from becoming too dry by weaving in bits of wry asides. The podcast takes the subject seriously without taking itself too seriously, which can be tricky. Thank you, Nigel. That's wonderful to hear. Before we go, remember to go and give the History of Vikings a listen. Thank you again to my House of Lords, every single one of them. Everyone who follows me on Facebook or Twitter. Everyone who's left a review and to you for listening. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather now at ChompaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a historian, professor, and the creator of History That Doesn't Suck, a podcast that provides a complete overview of U.S. history through storytelling, yet keeps the rigor you'd expect in a university class. Starting with 22-year-old George Washington in his first battle, join me for a chronological telling of the United States' story, its unlikely revolution, fractious civil war, tenacious inventors, brave reformers, and more. With more than 100 episodes, you can already binge listen your way through the progressive era. Find History That Doesn't Suck wherever you get your podcasts.